was already a little bit overweight. So I went on a little bit of a weight loss uh, routine there, just counting kilojoules, going for a walk every day, lost some weight. And as soon as I did lose some weight, how does that work? Like where did the weight that I was losing go? How did that come out of me? You know, I was like, where are the atoms that were in my body now that they're not inside my body? Where do they go? And, and that has sort of propelled me onto this completely slight career change, which is learning first the biochemistry. And then I've, I've ended up writing a book about the answer. And let's talk about the answer in just a minute. But it's clearly got a lot to do with breathing. And because it's got a lot to do with breathing, I get asked all sorts of questions about how should I breathe? Can I breathe more if I want to lose weight? All that sort of stuff. Hello, my fellow breathers, and welcome back to the Take a Deep Breath Breathcast. Uh, my name is Mike Mayer. I am your host, and I have got a very exciting episode for you today. Uh, Mr. Ruben Meerman, also known uh, as the surfing scientist, joins us, um, and we're answering a question which most people don't know the answer to, which is where does the fat go when you burn it off? Now, I thought it was poop and sweat. It's not, um, and you're going to find out more. So this is uh, probably the most fun and interesting breathcast I've done because it answers a lot of questions around things that we think we know the answers to, but actually we don't. And Ruben um, has been on uh, Australian television. He does a lot of stuff teaching kids, and I, you know, probably have a bit of a kid's brain here. Um, I respond really well when people explain really complex subjects really simply and he does that in an amazing way I could just listen to him talk for hours he's got TED talks out there um, where he talks about fat loss and the relation to aka us breathcast breathing breathing exercises how we breathe why we breathe all that sort of stuff I just want to talk about one thing as the holidays approach us right now um, I don't normally talk about products too much on this channel if you've been with me for a while um, and I'm very skeptical of a lot of things um, and I'm a big believer that we can fix ourselves through natural remedies such as you know breathing um, but it's been a, it's been a tough year for me you know I've got a house um, then got a dog and then the dog's destroying the house I'm looking after this channel looking after a couple of other channels for other people um, trying to keep healthy you know, trying to keep my relationship going really well, uh, trying to spend time with my family, all the things that I'm sure most people watching this um, have dealt with. And I found my stress levels increasing. I'm doing breathing exercises, doing different bits and things here and there. Uh, but but I think recently stress got to quite a high level and it started compounding itself. Um, and I went, there's a breath cast I've got coming out soon, um, a second one, uh, with a, a gentleman called uh, Chris who wrote The Gamma Mindset. I went to see him in Wales and he wanted to do the technique on me. Um, and when he did, I did some breathing exercises first. And, I, I, you know, I came there in probably quite a stressed state. I had a couple of coffees, got there. And I couldn't relax enough. And he put one of these on me, a Sensate. And I'd never heard it before. He goes, this this is the, the big stuff. This is going to sort you out. And I, I was, okay, I've done, you know, surely it's breathing only. Um, and you put it on your chest and you put the headphones in and you've got some sort of binaural beats on the app. There's all different music you can choose from. Um, and he goes, I'll be back in five minutes. And, and he left me alone and he was 20 minutes and it felt like five. I entered one of the most deep, relaxed states 
that I can remember. I can't remember being in such a relaxed state after, after 20 minutes. I struggle with meditation. That's why I like breath work because with the breath work, I'm focusing more on the breathing. It stops me getting into the mind. I'm quite, you know, type A, highly strung a lot of the time. One of the reasons I was so drawn to, to breathing is the fact that, you know, I do run at a, a higher level of stress, I think. Um, this, this is, this is something special. Um, you know, I'm not sponsored by these people. I do have an, a link down below and an affiliate uh, to that. So there's a little bit of kickback to the channel. Um, but when Chris put this on me um, and I was there for 20 minutes, I, I, I experienced something I didn't know that was possible without going to a spa and a massage and all that good stuff. So um, I really recommend these. If you're, if you're wanting to relax and meditation is a bit of a struggle for you, there's something about this. What it's doing it's vibrating here um, and it's doing vagal uh, toning. So, so we've got a vagus nerve that touches all of our body. Um, you've probably heard of fight and flight and rest and digest. The frequencies and vibrations this is given off along with the music and the relaxation. It does something to get our body into a faster state. And people like Dave Asprey, who's kind of on the fathers of biohacking, he's put some quotes out there saying he really loves this. So this is a, is a wonderful an addition. And I've got a really exciting breathcast coming out with Chris Walton, um, talking more about relaxation and that sort of thing. Um, and this was just a, a happy accident. So um, as we approach the holidays, I highly recommend this if you can afford it. It's a really good piece of kit. Um, and I've been using it now. And, you know, when it comes to things like the Headspace app and other bits and bobs. I do struggle. I struggle with consistency, whereas I actually look forward to, to using this put it on and even if my partner my girlfriend she she's been using it as well so um yeah sensate uh link is below uh ha have a look at it right so anyway enough yabbering from me hopefully that's giving you some excitement about relaxation ruben meerman you can have a really good time now with ruben uh, so let's take it away cheers um so we're here to talk today about the wonderful world of breath um, and I can't wait to, to get stuck into that with you. And uh, you've got some very interesting research that uh, I know people are going to find fascinating. Um, but before we go and I tease people with that, maybe we just go down. The route. Could you share a bit more about maybe your background, Ruben, and how you got to where you got to today? That'd be really interesting, I think, for people. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, so I uh, have a physics degree and I worked in laser engineering uh, as my first job. And then as a result of going down that track, I ended up doing a, a really a little bit of television work here in Australia, being a science presenter on a few uh, children's TV shows and a, a couple of adult sort of science-y shows. Um, and that was all just ticking along quite nicely and it was all good fun. And then uh, when I was 42, was a little bit overweight and I decided to lose some weight. I also used to be a smoker, which is highly embarrassing now, but back then I was addicted. So um, I gave up in, when I was 42. And um, as you probably know, when you give up smoking, there's a high risk of weight gain. A lot of people put on weight when they stop smoking because they eat a bit more. And I was, I was already a little bit overweight. So I went on a little bit of a weight loss uh, routine there, just counting kilojoules, going for a walk every day, lost some weight. And as soon as I did lose some weight, how does that work? Like, where did the weight that I was losing go? How did that come out of me, you know? Anyway, so, yeah, I, I was like, where are the atoms that were in my body now that they're not inside my body? Where do they go? And, and that has sort of propelled me onto this completely slight career change, which is, 
learning first the biochemistry and then I've, I've ended up writing a book about the answer and let's talk about the answer in just a minute, but it's clearly got a lot to do with breathing. And because it's got a lot to do with breathing, I get asked all sorts of questions about how should I breathe? Can I breathe more if I want to lose weight? All that sort of stuff. So do, do you know the answer, by the way, what happens to fat when you lose it? I, I guess you've probably read up on what I've been banging well, on about. But I, I, Yeah, I saw, you, I saw your TED talk and I saw it when you went into the streets and you're interviewing people and you're talking about carbo, carbohydrates. But I, I didn't know until, until I found you. I didn't know this. I'd, I'd heard there was a video I saw on YouTube a while ago, not, not by you. And it was like weight loss through breathing. I thought, well, that's a load of BS. How does that, how does that work? You know, somebody's saying you can do a certain breathing technique to lose weight. So, so I know very little in this subject. And, and when I stumbled across you, I was like, oh, that's exciting. Is that where it goes? Because I always assumed yeah. you sweat it off. Well, I don't know, the, 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 the fat's coming out of your pores or, or you're pooping the fat out. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, I know a yeah. tiny little bit, so I can't wait to get stuck in. Yeah, look, and I was the same. So when, when I lost that weight, I was completely clueless about it as well. So having a physics degree, I had done essentially no chemistry, no definitely no biochemistry. So I was as clueless as the next person when I first stumbled onto that question. And to discover that, well, or to read in a book, that uh, fat gets converted to carbon dioxide and you breathe it out, that just floored me and and also motivated me to just keep going because once I understood the mechanism and I realised that you can't fail to lose weight as long as you eat less carbon atoms than you breathe back out as carbon dioxide. If, If you're getting less carbon going into your bloodstream than what's coming out through your lungs, you definitely lose weight. And that just was... the I. I reckon that's the most motivating fact I've ever learned. And I'm trying to teach other people why that's the case, but um, we'll get to why it's hard to uh, get other people to see the significance of what I just said. And it's an education issue and um, we'll get yeah. into that. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I, I want to talk a bit about poop then, if that's all right, first, before we get into the breath. So how, what percentage of, of the carbon comes out through the breath versus the poop versus, is there any, what are the ways it leaves our body, I guess, is, is the question. Right. That's, that's the perfect question. And um, so when, when I f- was first on my little weight loss journey, um, so I was, you know, just eating less, moving more, going for a walk every day. At the same time, before I'd even stumbled onto this question, I was researching for a children's book that I was supposed to write And it was going to be about poo, farts, snot, wee, all the gross stuff that kids love. Um, And I had only just read what is the composition of poo? Like what what is it actually made of? Mm. And the answer was, again, this one floored me too. So uh, an average normal healthy person's number two is 75% water, just pure H2O. Out of the 25% that's not water, about a third, a half to a third of it is the fibre that you eat in fruits and vegetables that's indigestible. Mm -hmm. Um, So that just goes in your mouth and goes all the way through the tube and comes out the other end. Uh, About a half to it, not about a third-ish is um, the bacteria that that feed on those fibres, you lose like a whole heap of those in every bowel movement. So there's quite a bit of that. And then the rest is just the tiny bit of food that's not digested that you didn't absorb into your bloodstream. And there's a little bit of bile that makes it through as well. So um, so it's, it's really like the only thing that you eat 
uh, out of a meal. So in goes, you know, a, a, a meal is mostly water. Uh, there's some carbohydrates in there. If you're eating any kind of fruit and vegetable, uh, there's protein and fat. Yeah. Mm. So out of the, and then there's a little bit of fiber out of all that stuff that you put in, the only thing that makes it to your backside directly is the fiber that you didn't absorb into your bloodstream because you couldn't. Oh. It's indigestible fiber. That's where it gets mm-hmm. the name from. Just about everything else goes into your bloodstream. And then the only way it can get back and out of your backside is it's got to be then sort of excreted back into your digestive system, which is amazing. Like I just yeah. found that wonderful to know that everything I eat goes in my blood except for the fiber. Yeah. And so it's also really uh, enlightening and motivating to know that, right, if I eat it, it's going to go in my bloodstream. And the, if it's a carbon atom in the form of carbohydrates, protein or fat, all those three things are made of carbon atoms plus a bit of hydrogen and oxygen. Mm-hmm. Once you've eaten that and absorbed it into your bloodstream, the only way you can get those carbon atoms to come back out of your body is to breathe them back out as carbon dioxide. So mm-hmm. you've got to vaporise them. Yeah. and uh, un- until you do, they're in your body and that's where your mass comes from atoms. So uh, to me, that is the best thing to know, that it's, it's just a balance of atoms in versus atoms out. And mm-hmm. so you're asking about, you know, what happens to the rest of it? So out of the protein and the fat and the carbohydrates in a meal, in a mixed meal uh, of those three things, uh, about 75% of that weight comes back out of your lungs. So three quarters of what you eat, you yeah. breathe back out. Wow. The other quarter becomes, uh, almost all of that becomes water and a little bit of it becomes urea. So in protein, protein is the only macronutrient that has nitrogen atoms in it. And um, the nitrogen atoms in protein, you will convert into urea and then they'll get filtered out of your blood by your kidneys and you Mm. pee them out as urea in your urine. And there's a tiny bit of sulfur as well in protein, but it's like a wisp. It's it's like milligrams a day. Yeah, about milligrams or grams a day. And that that also comes out of your urine. So urine is the other, your kidneys are the other major excretory organ, right? Uh, it's, It's your lungs for carbon dioxide and then your kidneys for just about everything else that's in food. Wow. Amazing. It's it's amazing. And and it's amazing that I got to nearly 40 and never knew this. It's it's shocking that this information isn't out there. Shocking. It is actually a scandalous disgrace that we are not taught this in in primary school. Uh, But it's it's not our current teacher's fault. It's no no human being's fault. It's just uh, the way the education system has developed and what we think children can learn at what age, mm. the history of that has led to a curriculum that doesn't include it. But mm. that's my mission in life is to make sure that primary school children learn this stuff, get it in here before they get to the age of puberty when their body starts to change because then they've got much more control over how big or small their body is, uh, how much fat they store in their body. If they get this really deeply if they know it viscerally and they believe it, they understand the science, then they've then we've given them the power to um, take control over their own weight. And I don't think it's going to solve the obesity crisis or anything, but I mm. think if, if I'd known this stuff when I was 13, 14, I would have just been fascinated. I just mm. would have liked to know that. And then I don't know. I mean, I, I'm one of the lucky kids that was, you know, didn't struggle with my weight as a, a kid. So 
But for the children who do end up having, you know, becoming eight and then becoming this, I want to know if this would help them. So that's that's my mission in life is to find that out. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if, if as a kid you understand how things work, it, it can only help, surely, and, and not to know those things. You know, like I say, for me to walk around thinking, yeah, I need to sweat out this fat that needs to come out of my pores. And, you know, it, it sounds crazy to say that now after what you, you've shared. Um, just, just a quick last question on poop before we get into some more um, stuff. Um, does it, does it, is it, is that composition different for other mammals or is it about the same? So if I took a dog, for example, or something else, does it change a little bit? Uh, it highly depends on your diet. If you don't mm-hmm. eat any fibre, um, then obviously there won't be any fibre in your stool. And so biologists um, collect scat is what they call it, um, uh, and they can find out what, what sort of meals uh, the animal that they're studying has been eating. Mm. With, between humans, um, there will be variation as well. Uh, depending on your diet, for starters. Obviously, the more fruit and veg you eat. Uh, actually, this is an interesting story to just quickly share mm. with you. In the When I was researching that book, I just was fascinated to know how did doctors figure all this stuff out because, you know, it's it's not obvious and someone had to go and analyse the, con- the composition of poo. So what did they do? And one of the first experiments that was done or a, a was to find out how long does it take for food to get from your mouth all the way to your backside, like how many hours. Mm. And uh, so they, the first experiments done on that were done with seeds that were indigestible and they would give the seeds like millet seeds, which is a kind of grass, and various mm. other seeds were given to volunteers who'd eat them with a meal and then they would collect their number twos and sieve them and look for the seeds again. And they also used to do things like give people... Um, think cochineal or something like that, a, a red food colouring, a red dye, a very bright dye, put that in and see how long it took to get out the other end. Then some, this is in the early 1900s we're talking, um, then there was a Dr Alvarez in the Journal of the American Medical Association had a great idea. He gave uh, volunteers little glass beads, little tiny ones that, you know, you can put on a thread. In fact, I don't know if they were the ones that you can with a hole in them, but they, he, the point is they were little and Though he had three different colours of them, red, blue and green, or red, blue and yellow, sorry, and he put them in a little capsule, 50 red ones on day one, gave it to his volunteers, day two, 50 blue ones, and on day three, 50 of the yellow, or the last colour, and then he'd sieve them out and find them again. And um, unfortunately, it, it his data wasn't very useful because those glass beads have a a higher specific gravity. They're more dense than the right. food stuff that you're eating and they didn't go through very, uh, not at the same rate as um, what your meal does. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it, the whole problem was solved by getting, um, well, the answers were obtained by getting um, a kind of plastic that they could make the same specific gravity or specific density as, as your food. And they, uh, impregnated that plastic with barium or I think it was barium, a metal that will show up on x-rays ah. so that the people could take these tiny little um, plastic pellets and then collect their number twos and then no one had to sieve them or anything. Mm. You could just put that in the x-ray machine and see if those little things were in there. And so, yeah, uh, it's fascinating that, that now we know that the average person, if you have more fibre, your whole gut transit time, the time from your mouth to your bum gets shorter. Mm. And so 
it was there was a big experiment done by the Burkett study. It's called. It's it was in the early seventies it came out, and that's when fiber exploded onto the public psyche as something that you had to have. Wholemeal bread suddenly became really important because they found that people on traditional African diets, which were high in fiber, and uh, people on sort of the middle of the road diets in India, which had a fair bit of fiber, but not as much as the Africans, uh, they had fast transit times, very large, very soft, healthy stools. And English uh, subjects in this study, naval officers were um, recruited and their families who had much less fibre in their diet. They had smaller stools. They had uh, longer transit times. They had more risk of constipation and so forth. Mm. So that that's what that people thought, okay, fibre is the, the answer mm. and it got more complicated since then. Um, if you know anyone who's on the full carnivore diet, mm-hmm. um, I know some people on the full yeah. carnivore diet, they don't eat fibre, just, just beef. Yeah, and um, the the people that I know on that diet, they tell me that their uh, their number twos are perfectly fine, healthy. Number threes and fours on the Bristol stool form scale. Have you heard of this? Scale? I've not. No, no. <laughs> You're going to have fun. Um, <laughs> it, it was um, developed at, at the Bristol Hospital Infirmary, so it's right. got the name the, the Bristol stool form scale. Google yep. that, and you you can get mugs with that uh, and t-shirts with the picture guide on it. It's, okay, I'll have a look. <laughs> it, it, doctors use it. It's, it's fascinating yeah. and it's important yeah. because, you know, we laugh and giggle when we talk about um, number twos, going to the toilet, poo, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, gastroenterologists are, I think they're some of the biggest heroes in medicine because if you've got IBS, irritable bowel syndrome or any of those diseases they're a nightmare for mm-hmm. people like you know if, you, if mm-hmm. you can't trust your backside to hold in what's you know on the other side then going out in public is terrifying for you so yeah, yeah we can laugh about it but it's a re- actually a really um it's it's really yeah it's um I, i've got mine under control now but i've had rbs since about 2003 and uh, it was pretty bad at some points but um eventually i figured out what diet and stress was causing it and I was able to manage it now so um but when we were we were I, I won't go into the full story now but when I was backpacking a couple of years ago and jumping from continent to continent and getting all those different microbes in it flared back up again so we were in um I think Indonesia and I was not a good man I was not a well man back then Ruben it was uh <laughs> it was tough time so yeah so I know the day you leave the house you think I don't know if I can leave. I need to be near a toilet. It's it's not a good place to be. Yeah. I had that little issue in Bali when I was writing my book. I went there for a couple of weeks as a little writing retreat and I nice. got, they call it Bali belly uh, over okay. here in Australia, but it's not got anything to do with Bali. It's mm. to do with um, you're just in a different place with different microbes and yeah. if you can't trust um, your, your uh, machinery, you can't house it's so it's so yeah. debilitating it is yeah it's uh, yeah. yeah by the time i got to bali i'd already been to indonesia malaysia jordan and a load of other places and so bali was like the safe place for me um right. 
but everywhere else it just absolutely destroyed me. But uh, no, I, I, yeah, you, you guys are quite close to Bali. I forget Bali's like quite close to, well, I say close, closer than it is to England, yeah. you know, um, but yeah, beautiful place. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we we're talking poop, different poop for different animals, but it based on the fiber content. So, so question about ketosis then and keto, because I've heard people talk about keto breath. Has that got mm-hmm. something to do with what you're talking about here as well? Because I never connected the breath and keto before like that. Okay, right. I'll, I'll explain this because your your um, audience will be very interested in, you know, the breathing side of, mm. well, everyone is, but your audience will be very familiar with the fact that they breathe out carbon dioxide mm. and the fact that if you hyperventilate, the amount of carbon dioxide in your bloodstream goes uh, down mm. and which makes your uh, blood pH go up, funny mm. enough. So I, I, I suspect a lot of your um, viewers will know sort of some of that biochemistry. The thing that happens when people go on a ketogenic diet or when a diabetic person goes into ketoacidosis is uh, if you, you can do it by just not eating carbohydrates, just stop eating carbs, you'll end up in ketosis. And mm. that's not a bad thing. Um, it's when diabetics have it running away on them, that's when it's dangerous. But just if you go on a low-carb diet or if you start fasting, just don't eat anything. If you don't eat anything, that means you're not eating carbohydrates as well. The thing that happens differently is normally when you have got carbohydrates in your diet, you've got a lot of glucose is what really gets all the carbs you eat end up being broken right down to single molecules called glucose molecules. And normally when there's glucose around in your um, bloodstream, then you will be burning glucose and you'll be burning a little bit of fat all the time. It's not like there's this switch that is, your body doesn't go from burning nothing but carbohydrates to burning nothing but fat. Mm. So there's a myth out there. It's called the fat switch. And there's all sorts of people who seem to believe that you have to not eat carbs before you will burn fat. Incorrect. You're always burning a bit of fat. The thing is, there's two ways your body can burn fat. And one is called beta oxidation. And I don't expect any of your viewers to to suddenly go, oh, that makes sense, beta oxidation, because it's just a word. But what the other way, the keto pathway, both of these two roads will lead to carbon dioxide. So both of these ways of breaking a big, long fat molecule, which is usually something like 16 carbon atoms long. It's like a chain and it's got little hydrogens hanging off it. Um, beta oxidation is this process that's, that's what's typically going on. You are s- chopping up this um, big, long molecule into two carbon units and they then go into another cycle, which is called the Krebs cycle, and that's where it turns into carbon dioxide. And that normally happens when there's carbohydrates around. If you don't eat any carbohydrates, uh, you will be doing that beta oxidation thing, but you'll start doing it so much that you end up making, you're doing it so fast that you've got more of these little two carbon units floating around in your liver and your liver and your kidneys can do this too, but your liver will then start sticking those two little carbon unit things together and forming a substance called uh, beta well, acetoacetate, which is a, and then acetoacetate is this four carbon molecule, which can spontaneously without, your body doesn't really want this to happen. It can spontaneously lose a carbon 
as carbon dioxide. And then you're left with acetone, a three carbon um, molecule. Mm-hmm. Acetone, exactly the same acetone as you use to remove fingernail polish. Right. Your body makes that. It's not a poison at the um, concentrations that your body's producing it. It's quite okay. It's fine. Um, that, that little spontaneous thing that happens, that um, four carbon thing, acetoacetate, spontaneously losing a carbon mm-hmm. dioxide and becoming acetone, to try and... Pre- I, I'm using um, the wrong sort of words... Uh, I'm trying to make it sound like your body's trying to do stuff. These are all just biochemical reactions that happen. But we think that there was some evolution that happened where that four carbon atom uh, molecule, acetoacetate, it gets converted to a substance called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And that's much more stable and doesn't spontaneously turn into acetone and carbon dioxide. So you end up with three molecules that you started with fat. Yeah. You're not eating carbs. And so this other ketosis thing happens uh, much more rapidly and you end up with these three other substances. It's still the same atoms, but they've been rearranged and now your fat has been turned into acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate and a bit of acetone. And the acetone is highly volatile as a substance, which just means it has a very low boiling point. So it very rapidly in your lungs, it just evaporates out of your lungs and comes out in your breath. It evaporates out of your skin a little bit as well, so you can smell it on people when they're in ketosis. Mm. Um, so that that's what your your that your question was about. You know, yes. does that have anything to do with all this? And it does. Um, you do lose a little bit more carbon through your breath and through your bladder when you are in that ketosis state. It's not a huge amount more, as far as I know. Um, I don't have good data on that, but um, but look, most of the weight in the food that you eat comes out as carbon dioxide, um, even if you're in ketosis, even if you're in ketosis because that acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate stuff, that gets broken down and your, your brain can burn it, your muscles can burn it, yeah, um, and they all just still end up turning it into carbon dioxide. Yeah. So it's highly convoluted, uh, this biochemistry, but and it's if you haven't done any chemistry at school, it seems impenetrable. It's like... Mm. These words are just, it seemed impenetrable to me when I first started reading about it because I hadn't done the basics of biochemistry. But the more you learn it, it's just, it's beautiful. It's just such a great thing to know that you are all the time, you're just vaporizing food and just, I mean, to speak to you, I have to exhale and make my uh, vocal cords vibrate. And to do that, I've got to breathe out carbon dioxide. So I'm, 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 I'm vaporizing food and using it to communicate with you. It's just fantastic. It's so amazing, isn't it? It's such an interesting thing. So, so when it comes to the level of uh, carbon that's coming out, or, or you know, so so how does that change from? Um, is it different when I'm sleeping versus when I'm awake? If I'm exercising, I'm breathing heavy. Am I am I losing more fat at that point, or is there like an afterburn? Can you share a bit about what the different levels of excretion looks like? Yeah, absolutely. This that's again very good question, and your listeners will love this these facts. So, in general, for um, a healthy person with healthy lungs, in fact, not just healthy people, healthy mammals, we all breathe out roughly four to six percent of the air that comes out of us is carbon dioxide all the time, mm-hmm. and the the way it changes is 
if you are moving more, when you start burning, uh, when you start moving your legs or any muscle, you'll need to breathe more because you, you'll be uh, using more energy, which comes from food. And it comes from food by burning it, which means turning it into carbon dioxide. So when you're sitting still, um, I'll do these numbers for me. You'd be about the same weight as me. I'm 70 kilos, 71 kilos. So when I'm sitting still, um, I need to breathe. In fact, all humans need to breathe uh, about 100 millilitres of air per minute per kilogram of you. Mm -hmm. So whatever your weight is, multiply it by 100 millilitres per minute. That's mm -hmm. what you need per minute. So that's seven litres of uh, air mm -hmm. I'm sucking in and out per minute, roughly. Um, not all of that air makes it to your lungs. So the first part of the human body that air runs into is your mouth, down your throat, into your trachea, down your bronchi, bronchi and then your mm -hmm. bronchioles. And, you know, it's, it's a long way from your mouth to the alveoli in your lungs, yeah? Yeah. All of that volume from here to the alveoli, it's about 100 and something millilitres of volume. That's referred to by uh, anatomists as dead space. It's re uh, respiratory dead space because it, it, you can't exchange oxygen in your mouth with your blood, right? It's got to, it happens in your alveoli yes. and all those tubes are considered dead space. So... Um, you, you need to suck in more than 100 millilitres of air to get any air into your alveoli, in other words. Once it's in there, then the gas exchange can happen and it happens really quickly so that an average breath for anyone, you, me, a little child, a 90-year-old um, person, mm -hmm. our breath is always, when it's going in, there's only about, 0.04% carbon dioxide. That's right. the, the, just the atmospheric level of CO2. Yeah. When we breathe out, it's 4 to 6% carbon dioxide. So mm. more than a hundredfold increase in CO2 as you breathe out. Yeah. So here's fact number one that just is awesome to know. The air you breathe out is heavier than the air you breathed in. Yeah. Because it's got carbon atoms in it. You breathe in O2, you breathe out CO2. Those carbon atoms add weight. And the carbon component of an exhaled breath, an average breath, is about 9, 10 milligrams of carbon in one breath. Mm. So in one hour, if, you're, if I'm sitting still, in, in one hour I breathe out about 7 grams of wow. carbon atoms. Yeah. And that's just sitting still. So, uh, if I get up and move around, it goes up, it, it increases. When I'm standing and um, like I am now, I'm breathing about almost twice as much as I would if I was sitting down. And that's just because I'm activating my the biggest muscles in my body, you know, the, the muscles in your legs. Mm. If you walk, you breathe four times more air than when you're sitting still per minute, which means you're losing four times more carbon out of your lungs per minute. And if you run... Uh, just a jo gentle jog, it's about eight times the amount of air you're breathing per minute. So you you could say you're losing weight eight times faster than yeah. when you're sitting still, which is true. Yeah. Wow. And the, the most you can breathe um, or the, the, the highest you can get your metabolic rate um, 
is by sprinting absolutely flat out as hard as you possibly can. And if you do that, you'll be breathing about 23 times the amount of air you would when you're sitting still mm-hmm. per minute. But you can only keep that up for you know a minute or two. That's called high-intensity training, mm-hmm. I guess, but it's just sprinting as hard as you can is about the, the highest you can get your, your uh, metabolic rate. But to answer your question about you know when you're doing that what's the level of co2 in your exhaled breath doing and it's staying roughly the same between four and six percent there is a whole field of uh there's two fields of medicine that are deeply concerned with breathing that's the intensive care unit at the hospital had they breathe for you so they are acutely and deeply aware of all of the facts you want to know about breathing they're the they're they're the experts and the other ones are uh, anaesthetists who also monitor your breathing very closely if you're um, under anaesthesia. And there's a third group, but they're sort of related to the ICU ward. The, um, the paramedic people also are very interested in your breathing because if you uh, have an accident and you're not breathing, obviously they need to breathe for you, either give you, put a mask on you or intubate you. Um, And they have a technique now, which has been around for about 15, maybe 20, 25 years. Um, The measurement of carbon dioxide in your breath, it's called capnography. Mm. So you probably have heard the words Mm. hypercapnic and hypocapnic. Mm -hmm. So hypercapnia is when there's more CO2 in your blood than is typical. And hypocapnia is when there's less CO2 in your blood than is typical. Um, which is what's typical is called normocapnia. So the measurement of the CO2 in your breath is called capnometry. Mm. And it's done by, um, these days, it's done by passing your exhaled breath through a tube and shining infrared light through that tube. And on the other side of the, the, the little device that shines, the infrared light is on one side and on the other side is a detector. And the amazing thing about carbon dioxide is it absorbs infrared light. So mm. to measure how much CO2 you're breathing, we just shine infrared light through it. And on the other side, we see how much of that light was absorbed. That tells us how much CO2 is in your breath. Wow. So capnography is amazing. It's, uh, if you go and look at a standard normal capnogram, it's so revealing when you breathe out the amount of CO2 in your breath the amount of CO2 going past your, your lips. When you're breathing in, it's obviously almost nothing because mm. it's fresh air. So it's 0.04%, wouldn't show up hardly. But when you breathe out, the first little bit of your breath has got no carbon dioxide in it because it, it's the bit that didn't make it all the way right. to your lungs, right? that dead space. Yeah. As your breath proceeds out of your mouth, it, the, the level of CO2 in your breath goes up at a sort of a, a bit of a slope. And then it reaches a, a, the top of the slope pretty quickly and then it still keeps going up but, but with a less gradient um, as more and more of the air that's coming from deep inside your alveoli is, is now coming out of your mouth. There's CO2, CO2, and it keeps going up and up and up. And the highest it gets is around 6 7%. If you hold your breath for, I don't know, five minutes if you can do it, mm then yes, you'll have a bit more CO2. It'll, you'll go above maybe 7%. I don't know what the highest is that humans can get to actually. This is where we need an intensive care person. But um, yeah. but if you hyperventilate, um, 
then, you know, if you're doing the Wim Hof method or any kind of hyperventilation, then if you keep watching the, the, the capnogram, you'll see at the beginning of your hyperventilation, your exhaled breaths have got about 6% CO2 in it. The next time you breathe out, it down to 5%. The time you breathe out, it might get down to 4 It might get down to 3 I don't know how low you can go. I've, I haven't. I need to buy some of this equipment and yeah. test it at home. But, um, but if you keep hyperventilating, it, the amount of CO2 in your breath goes down, down, down. And doctors and paramedics and ICU people are very interested in making sure that the CO2 in your exhale breath is always between 4 and 6%. If it starts going down for no obvious reason, that's a medical emergency, right? Like mm-hmm. if you... If it's down at three percent, two percent for no obvious reason, like then that's a medical emergency. You're not meant to have less than four percent CO two in your breath. So uh, again, coming back to weight loss, that should be the most motivating factor I can tell you because it means that you are always, always, always breathing out carbon. You're yeah. always losing weight, like yeah. just sitting still, vaporizing your weight. So I, I'd I'd love to see what you do with this. Info, like you know, um, in your breathing um, classes, just having people focus on, you know, just just meditate on that fact for a little while. You breathe fresh air, you bring out excited air, and it's heavier. So you yeah. you're just sitting there losing weight, just slowly, yeah. breath by breath by breath. Magic. So it's so cool. And, and so with the Wim Hof stuff, then. Um, so I think I probably know the answer, but is there different types of breathing techniques you can do to lose more weight or is it not really to do with that? Because as you've just said, the CO2 goes down, 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 down. So I'm not really getting any more out, but is there any differences with mouth versus nose? Or if I do certain techniques, is that going to do anything? Or really is it to do with my, my moving my body? That's the big thing I need to do to, to move the weight. But if there is any difference, I think it would be what we would call a second order effect. Like it would be such a small part of the whole of what's changing. Certainly when you, so let's talk about where this carbon dioxide comes from and it'll become sort of obvious. Um, The carbon dioxide you're breathing out, every single cell in your body made a bit of that carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So we can look at while you're sitting still, um, we know that your brain consumes about 20% of the oxygen you're using that you're inhaling and it's producing about 20% of the CO2 you're exhaling. So one fifth of the CO2 coming out of your face was made here from the food you ate. So, I mean, you know, food goes in stomach, boom, gets back to there. You turn in CO2 back to your lungs, out of your face. Yeah, Amazing. Another fifth of the CO2 in your breath comes from your liver. I always get like, point to the wrong bits, but um, but your liver is about another fifth of the resting CO2 production. Your kidneys plus your heart would be close to a fifth. Your heart is just 60 beats a minute. You know, it's busy all the time. And so are uh, kidneys. They are really metabolically active organs. They have your heart and your kidneys are the most metabolically active organs in your body. They're just so busy mm-hmm. um, per, per gram of their tissue weight that is so we've accounted for about three-fifths of your resting uh, co2 production by with your brain your kidneys your heart and your liver 
your muscles at rest, all of your skeletal muscles, they make a, a, a good amount, but, you know, it's when you start moving your muscles just by standing up and not by sitting down, you almost double your resting metabolic rate. Really? Because wow. your muscles are in the muscles in your legs are huge. Yeah. And just just flexing them a little bit, up goes you double. That's a hundred percent increase in your how much air you're breathing, right? Yeah. And and just just me doing this, I'm I'm walking on the spot, I'm up to two and a half times yeah. what I was doing just a moment ago. The thing is you don't notice that really because your lungs are um it, it's not very taxing and your lungs have got huge capacity like we an average breath is only 500 milliliters or so of air so half a liter if that but you've got lung capacity of something like four to six liters you know so mm. you, you you can take huge big breaths but you rarely do mm. uh when you start exercising what's really changing and the reason you need to breathe more is because your muscles are now using such a huge amount of energy. They're using a huge amount of oxygen uh, and food and they're converting all of that into carbon dioxide and water and then you've got to get rid of that CO2. So there's, you have to breathe in more oxygen plus you're producing more CO2 and you've got to breathe that out. If you just sit still and you breathe more than you need to, your CO2 production hasn't gone up very much. Like... The work of breathing, which is, you know, pulling your diaphragm down and, and moving those muscles that you use for breathing, okay, that there is a little bit of work in that, that is a bit of energy, but it's it's nowhere near as much as the capacity to over-breathe. So if you just sit there and breathe more, then you are not producing more CO2, you're just blowing off more than you're making, and that's why you end up with the head spins and stuff. The, the physiology and biochemistry of the dizziness and the tingling and the, you know, all the amazing stuff, I, I'm not an expert on. Uh, in fact, I don't know that we fully understand every single component of it. But, um, you know, you can end up fainting if you do it for too long, as you know. The experiences that I, I've heard you talk uh, when you did the Wim Hof Method that you had some pretty amazing emotional experiences, yeah that fascinates me. I think I'm going to have to try it uh, yeah. because it's... A natural, would you call it a high? Was it, did it feel good? Yeah, it, it, it felt, um, well, it, there was an emotional release. Um, so there was laughing and crying, but I was almost a little bit detached from that. Um, and then there was some, I've never done any psychedelics, but there was a, a psychedelic-esque thing going on there where I had strong visuals. And actually, even just doing three rounds of, of Wim Hof uh, breathing on my bed, um, and then I just keep my eyes shut and put my hands over my eyes, I'll get these lovely visuals, these beautiful visuals, even now, five years on, uh, and, and it's mesmerizing. You can just, uh, it's not as extreme as the hour and a half stuff I did. This is sort of 12 minutes and I'll just sit there and just enjoy this kind of uh, fireworks show that's happening. Uh, and it's wonderful from when I get a migraine, which doesn't happen very often. It, it just stops that as well. So I'm not sure what's going on, but it's, it's a wonderful feeling. So I, yeah, highly recommend having a crack at that. Yeah, yeah. Look, I definitely will. I just recently here at Mermaid Beach was coming off the beach one morning and uh, early, been for a run and there was a lady walking with bags of ice, lots of them. And I said, ah, um, ice bath. And she said, yeah. And I said, Wim Hof. And she said, yeah. And she said, come <laughs> cool. on in. But I, I had to get to work. So oh, no. I'll track her down and, um, and 
jump in the ice baths and yeah. see if I can get this, oh, uh, yeah. this light show. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, and also there's, there's something to do with, um, I mean, there's a guy called Dan Brule, which I don't know if you've heard of Dan. He's spent 40 years studying breath work and um, he just, he, he talks about trauma release and you've probably heard of a lot of holotropic breath and, and uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure science quite knows what's going on there, but there's something very, very powerful happening there in terms of getting all this trapped emotion. You know, we're, we're not always breathing properly. We're, we're kind of not using our diaphragms properly and our guts are being sucked in and we're breathing with our chest and, you know, and all this. And suddenly when people start taking, Dan was saying that, um, sometimes people take as, as, as few as three or four big breaths and they'll just burst into tears because they're just not used to breathing oh. in that way. So it's a, an incredible yeah. field of stuff, but yeah, sorry to digress, but yeah, fascinating yeah. things. Yeah. Oh, that's not a digression. That's really, that's good stuff. I mean, I, I have been t- trying to explain to people for eight years now or so this, that just this basic biochemistry of uh, breathing out the food that you eat. And I get asked so many times, the same sorts of questions like, oh, so can I just breathe more uh, to lose weight? And then I have to go explain why hyperventilation re- results in, you know, um, decreased carbon dioxide, so increased pH. Most people don't really know what increased mm-hmm. pH means. Mm-hmm. It's just words. Mm-hmm. Um, and But, look, beyond once that starts happening, I would – Doctors do know a heck of a lot about pH um, homeostasis Mm. and they do know a heck of a lot about, you know, how hemoglobin changes its affinity for oxygen. There's a lot of this biochemistry stuff that the experts um, and every doctor learns it. Um, They know that side. I don't think that we have started scratching the surface on what's going on with, you know, the sorts of things you're talking about with the emotional release. And I know that uh, I loved James Nestor's book on this, uh, really opened my eyes to the fact that for some people there is, it, it really does seem to help them with anxiety. I'm so lucky I don't have anxiety issues or any of those things. So when I first got asked these questions, like things like, oh, so is it, how should I be breathing through my nose, through my mouth? I can remember thinking, did you just suck air in and blow it out? I mean, what's there to know? Um, and turns out, there is stuff there to know. And a, a really interesting um, additional thing that I hadn't really looked at until I read James's book was nitric uh, oxide yes. production, mm-hmm. which I didn't realise that it's produced in your nose. And mm-hmm. the first time I looked at it, it was like, well, okay, nitric oxide is a radical, so it's very short-lived molecule if it's in a liquid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it wouldn't last very long at all in your bloodstream. But... Then I read some papers and uh, was amazed to see that, oh, okay, right, this stuff really can make it from your nostrils into your lungs because it's in the gas phase. Mm. So it has a longer lifetime. It doesn't bump into as many atoms per second. Um, And so I'm really fascinated to see where the research on the, you know, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing for various conditions goes i'm so lucky i don't have any of those conditions Mm. but i I did try another thing that happened down at the beach here i was running a few months ago and i saw some another young crew of people who had just done an ice bath the night before there and done some breathing exercises and we got into a conversation and they mentioned the nasal nitric and it was i hadn't really learnt much about it so I was highly skeptical and they probably noticed they probably thought I was a bit of an old 
skeptic, but and because I was thinking, uh, yeah, you know, this doesn't, I have not on my radar. And one of them said to me that I should try running on the, I run on the sand these days and yeah. uh, on the soft sand. So it's really hard going. And they said, oh, just try breathing through your nose while you're running. And I almost laughed thinking I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, but I've learnt to now just breathe through my nose when I'm running and yeah. I amazing that I can do it. I don't feel that, to be honest, like I feel like I'm getting um, incredible performance or any kind of high, but I do like breathing through my nose now when I'm running. I breathe out through my mouth but I, and I'm breathing through my nose. Now, I, was, I wouldn't have believed you could do that six months ago, I don't think. That's so, so cool, isn't it? Still my, learning, my, still learning. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the work of, of, of Patrick McEwen and the Oxygen Vantage is, is, is based upon that, that kind of thing. And, and he's done a lot of work with um, people with asthma and COPD and, and all those sorts of things. But I was talking to um, so Dr. Belfour, who uh, came up with a device called the Homeoblock, uh, and he's, a, he's an orthodontist. Um, and he's saying nitric oxide is the third gas that no one's talking about at the moment. There's a lot of emphasis on carbon dioxide, but he was saying nitric oxide really is where it's at. And, and if we hum, mm, we release even more through through the, 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 the nose. Um, and he goes as far as actually um, when you're doing box breathing, for example, uh, which is the in, hold, out, hold, um, which is common for Navy SEALs when in a high stress environment, he's saying you should be doing the exhale through the mouth to allow more nitric oxide to build up and don't waste it by breathing out through the nose. And then you get go back in through the nose again, nice and slow and, and harness all that extra nitric oxide. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. Apparently it sterilizes the air. It helps absorption of oxygen into the tissue. Um, it does a load of other things. Vasodilator, I think it's, it's doing all sorts of things. So it's, yeah, yeah, really, really exciting stuff. But yeah, Patrick's work around the nose is also fascinating. My dad, who's uh, coming up to his mid sixties now, um, similar story, actually, he I said, dad, you should be using your nose a bit more when you're on your bike. And he's like, impossible. And then, you know, after a couple of months of adaptation, he was saying, hey, Mike, I did the whole cycle with my mouth shut now. And it's, it's easy. It's easier. Um, but I think what Patrick, Patrick's done a lot of work with um, athletic people, um, tennis players, all sorts. I think there is a big ad adaptation phase where they will see a decrease in their athletic performance and they have to be willing to go through that to then come out the other side. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to do that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I know I've noticed that it is getting easier to keep going. Um, I, I, I Just a few weeks ago, I did the first leg of this run and made it the whole way down to Burley here and thought, wow, there you go. I've just done what yeah. about with just breathing through my nose. And so I will keep trying because yeah. if that makes sense that there might be an adaptation phase where it, yeah. it, maybe I will start to notice some kind of improvement. I'm not trying to break any records with my running or anything, so it's not like I'm timing myself, but I will keep doing it because it feels better. Like it, it, it um, particularly it's coming into winter here and um, early in the mornings, you know, breathing in through your nose and breathing out through your uh, breathing through your mouth, you lose a lot of water and mm. you dry out a lot more and all those things. Um, that Patrick McKean, I've, I've been starting to really uh, get into his work and he yeah. is, he's done some wonderful things. Yeah, the, the, there's some wonderful stuff around um, what he calls air hunger uh, and the fact that so many people are mouth breathers all day at work. <sighs> 
we're blowing off too. I mean, and by, by the way, I'm very conscious I'm talking to you and, and my knowledge of science when it comes to breathing is so low. So I'll give you a little bit, but you, you, you'll, you'll probably know so much more. But he was saying basically we blow off too much CO2. Uh, and so I think it's the, it's the chemoreceptors are, are not kind of in the place they should be. And so as soon as the, the CO2 gets a little bit high, we feel very breathless. And so we go to mouth. And if you look at people in the gym or running, a lot of them have the mouths open and they're just blowing off too much CO2. Uh, and, and they talk about uh, the samurai. Uh, this is in James Nestor's book. They'd put the feather in front of the samurai to see how hard they were breathing. If it was too much, they were not ready for, for battle. And so he does a lot of exercises around CO2 adaptation. Um, for example, there's a beautiful exercise where you just cup your hands over your mouth and you just pull a bit of CO2 and you just do that, a bit like wearing a mask. Um, and, and by doing that, you'll start to get used to levels of higher CO2. You can also do some breath holds um, just sort of 20, 30 seconds um, and build up. And, and this is what he does with athletes to get them used to higher levels of CO2 so that they can run faster with a mouth shut and not and, and delay that air hunger where they need to go to mouth. Because Colin McGregor, I think, is one he's talked about a lot, you know, goes to mouth. But actually, I think Patrick's saying he might be able to delay that a little bit because you'll probably understand this better, anaerobic, aerobic, and, and kind of the, the difference in the two. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful piece of, uh, of, of research that Patrick, done and it's uh I, I qualified as an oxygen advantage instructor last year so it was a real game changer for me to understand that kind of scientific stuff but then what, what's interesting Ruben I'm sure you'll know this is the more people you speak to because breath work feels like such an emerging field I was talking to uh Dr Greg Wells a couple of days ago he's a fellow surfer from the US he broke his neck when he was 14 15 and he's he's an Olympic commentator um and he was saying actually in through the nose out through the mouth is better because out through the mouth um is a lot less resistance so it's more efficient whereas Patrick would say you should be using the nose for both really and then you go to mouth when you have to so this is the nuance, I think, of breath is the more you get into it, the more you get all these conflicting ideas. So it's a, anyway, so it's a fascinating field. Um, so go on. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I just thinking about the nitric oxide, it makes sense to me that you should breathe out through your mouth because if it's being generated here, then, you know, if you breathe out through your mouth, you don't lose as much of it. It'll, you'll retain it in your sinuses for the next inhale. So that makes sense to me. The other thing that makes sense to me, and I'll have to read Patrick's take on this, is that um, I like to, I feel better when I breathe out through my mouth when I'm running because it's less resistance and it's just, when I am breathing in and out through my nose though, it does feel like I get a little bit of that air hunger, which makes me wonder if Patrick's, uh, idea of getting your CO2 levels up in your blood just a little bit higher than what you're comfortable with might actually be a good thing in the long run. Like you feel like you're not breathing enough. And I really noticed that if I breathe both in and out through my nose, I feel like, oh, geez, I'm not getting enough air. Mm. But I, but by changing to breathing out through your mouth, you'd think, oh, well, I mean, am I breathing a different amount of air? This is where what I would like to see is uh, in the hopefully not too distant future, the price of capnography at the moment is quite high because the sensors that we need to use are quite expensive. It's um, the diodes and so forth involved. It's, it's, uh, it's not cheap. So at the moment, it's not economically viable to have everyone have access at home to capnography. Right. But if we could all just wear a mask and sit there and watch the amount of CO2 in our breath and see the impact of doing different um, 
ways of breathing and uh, see what happens when you up your uh, physical activity levels. Um, I reckon that's going to change in the, hopefully the next five to 10 years, that technology will become cheap enough for people to have it at home. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, it's something that um, perhaps, you know, if I was a personal trainer, which I'm not, maybe I'll get into it, I would have capnography equipment and mm-hmm. I would have my um, uh, customers sitting down in front of a screen and seeing the CO2 levels in their exhaled breath and really getting them to focus on this fact that if you trying to what let's put in the context of weight loss if you're trying to lose weight and you go and exercise great you'll breathe out you know in uh, an hour you'll breathe out 10 times more than you would have if you'd sat still by just doing some kind of exercise so that's great if you if you now quantify how much carbon that is and write it down on a piece of paper or a spreadsheet and then before you go and eat something you know exactly how much carbon you're going to put back in that's when it's going to make it, uh, you know, that's when, you, that's when you're in control. When you know that, okay, you've just spent an hour in the gym, if you now go and have a cappuccino and a piece of banana bread, yeah. you'll completely undo what you just did in the gym. You'll put all of that carbon you just breathed out, bang, straight back in. Yeah. It's, you know, it, knowledge is power. And, um, and until, until everyone in, uh, learns this biochemistry as part of their um, general education in primary school for the people who've missed out on that I think putting a blooming mask on their nose uh, on their face and showing them how much CO2 is coming out of them and then comparing that to how much you'll put back in if you eat this this or that thing like this salad roll or that burger or mm-hmm. a glass of wine will put in one hour's worth of CO2 breathing um, uh, your resting metabolite so you know you got to alcohol is the other macronutrient so mm. that's where i think there, there's a uh, i think we're on a collision course here the breathing world the weight loss world the whole wellness world and it's all going to revolve around just how instantaneous this is like you, you've got to breathe 12 to 18 times a minute and if you do it differently you, you feel the results instantly like you'd know better than me because i haven't done much of these breathing workshops but you you get instant results right you do the wim hof method bang you're hallucinating within minutes yeah that's a really fast response time compared to you go on a diet it's three months before you can see any change on the scales or in your appearance so so to to get people to focus on the breathing side of not just weight loss but just being well I reckon there's a really wonderful um, convergence going on there and, I, and I'm just really glad that you people have been out there, um, you know, uh, promoting the, this breathwork stuff. Yeah, it's, great. it's very, very exciting. Uh, and you're right, if I if I could say, oh, you know, that's so many grams of, of carbon and then rather than just talking calories or sugar, going, no, and that's so many grams there and that donut, I, I, I don't know, some, suddenly it feels a bit different, go, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to put those grams of carbon back into my body again. It doesn't feel like it's worth it for what I've just, I've got done. Um, Ruben, last question for you. Um, Any impact of being in the sauna or being in cold water? Does that have anything to do with CO2 CO2 production? Yeah. um, So I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but definitely when you get cold, um, 
your body responds, first of all, uh, by activating some brown fat that you've, we've all got a, a substance or a, a tissue and it's called brown fat. It activates and it, if you, for gram for gram, uh, a gram of brown fat uh, can burn as much energy or produce as much CO2 as muscles can when you're using them. So uh, it's a really efficient way of turning food into carbon dioxide, but you don't have a lot of it. Um, and so it, it, the, the reason brown fat activates when you get cold is um, brown fat can turn your food into carbon dioxide and water without having to do the intermediate step of, I'll, I'll use the words here, just so that anyone who's listening sort of knows what's going on. If they've heard of ATP, people in personal training world, in exercise land, a lot of people who are interested in fitness know that your body takes the energy from food and puts it into a substance called adenosine triphosphate. Right. Uh, it's kind of like an intermediary for the energy part of what's in food, which has no mass. Like there's no we're not talking about atoms. We're talking about the energy in food ends up in this ATP. Your brown, what, sorry, when you're eating, when you're burning food, generally half of the kilojoules in food get put into ATP. ATP you can then use to do moving a muscle, having a thought. Uh, your kidneys use it to filter blood. Your liver uses it to detoxify uh, toxins. So ATP is this really important energy storage molecule and normally half of the kilojoules in your food end up in ATP before they are then released as heat. So all of the kilojoules you eat will eventually come out of your body as heat, literally infrared light. And um, see that heat when people are exercising in cold weather and you can see the, the steam coming off yes. them, yeah. that's they're literally losing heat into their environment. Now, um, brown fat, when, when you get cold, brown fat does this really clever trick. Um, it can just burn food without putting the energy into ATP first, just dump it straight to heat. And it's like an energy dumping system, but it generates a lot of heat very quickly. And that's your response to cold, right? It, you, need to, you need to generate more heat to stay warm when you're in a cold environment. So that happens and that does increase your CO2 production a little bit. Mm. Um, in fact, there was a paper on uh, a, a review paper in a journal called Trends in Endocrinology and Metabolism back in 2014, suggesting that one way to tackle the obesity crisis would be to drop the temperature inside office buildings really? so that people's fat would be added throughout the day. And they did the maths and showed that, yes, you, you literally could get people to burn a little bit more energy, wow. turn more food into carbon dioxide. Um, but cold exposure, you know, it gets really dangerous if you get too cold um, because the next thing that happens is uh, if you get colder than, uh, you know, your ambient surroundings are, I think, I can't remember the, the, the exact temperatures in Celsius, but you'll start to shiver and everyone knows that, right? You start mm. to shiver. Um, that is another way of generating heat. That's your muscles sort of jiggling so that they're, they're burning through food which means they are using more oxygen and producing more CO2. So, yes, you, you'll, um, 
you definitely do produce a little bit more carbon dioxide when you get cold than when you are okay. warm. Getting into a sauna, your heart rate goes up. I, I don't recall, it's not a huge difference in, you, you're not, you are producing a little bit more carbon dioxide when you're in a sauna. And I'm sorry, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but as a weight loss strategy, it's not particularly um, mm. effective compared to just going for a walk, mm. just literally just walking four times the amount of air you have to breathe in per minute compared to sitting still. So, you know, yeah. go for an hour walk, amazing. You've just amazing. breathed four times more air yeah. than you would have if you'd stayed home sitting still. Yeah. It's magic. I, I, I love that. I, I love it's the simple free stuff as well. It's like, hey, you don't need to go uh, and do hit cardio. You know, if you're just sitting all day, stand. And if, you, and if you're doing a bit of that, go for a walk. I love that sort of stuff because it's, it's the accessible stuff that everybody watching this can go off and do straight after this podcast is, hey, I'm going to go for a walk now and burn off four times more carbon than if yeah. I just sat here and watched TV, which is incredible. Um, Ruben, I, you, it's been so interesting talking to you uh, and you're such a good educator. I can see why you're working in the field with the primary schools because I think, oh my God, I would love to have had an educator like you because I, I, I really found science boring as a kid uh, and it wasn't the teacher's fault. I guess it was just the way it was all set up. But I was like, oh, it's so interesting. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more? Um, I, you can go to my website, which is just rubenmearman.com, and there's a bit of info there. There's my I've written a book uh, called Big Fat Myths. It's already that's two thousand and um, when did that come out? Two thousand and sixteen. So that needs a bit of a revamp, but it's still I get lovely feedback about that. Um, it's all about how fat turns into carbon dioxide, um, and I've done two TEDx talks. Uh, one in two thousand and thirteen, just specifically about what happens to fat when you lose weight. Um, and the most recent TEDx talk I did in a place called Bundaberg, which is my hometown, um, that, that one is sort of tells you where all of the atoms in macronutrients go when you, um, when you uh, burn those macronutrients in your body. So the, the two TEDx talks are a really great way to sort of get more info on what we've just been talking about. Right. Wonderful. Well, I will link those down below everybody. So if you just click into the description now, um, if you're on YouTube and if you're in, uh, if you listen to this, it'll be in the show notes. So guys, please check out those links for Ruben. Ruben, thank you. Honestly, that has been one of my favorite, if not favorite uh, podcasts, guests. You have been so interesting talking about poop and breath and weight loss and all that good stuff. So, uh, so thank you so much and um, have a great day, everybody. Cheers all. Cheers, Ruben. Congratulations for sticking around to the end of the breathcast. Um, I, I hope you got, you know, even 1% of the fun I got out of Ruben's conversation. Bloody amazing. You know, who, who would have thought that we breathe out the fat? You know, I definitely thought it, it was, it was pooping it out. Um, and his explanation for that sort of stuff is, is, is so cool. So to make sure you check out Ruben. His details are, are down below. Uh, let's make sure we give him some support. I think he's on his own breath journey now, which is quite exciting. So I look forward to seeing what he does next. Um, and he's just a fun person to listen to. Um, so, so just uh, again, back to this, this sensei, I just wanted to remind you again about this. The link is below, uh, vagal toning through vibrations and really cool, relaxing music, uh, particularly good for those people that struggle with meditation. Um, this is something that gets you into the zone really, really quickly. And I really love it. I really love it. Um, I'm so happy I've got this now. And, um, yeah, I look forward to sharing the other podcast with you soon where I first experienced it. 
without even knowing what it was. Um, so yeah, Sensei, link is below. A uh, couple of last messages. Um, if you can uh, follow us on Instagram, takeadeepbreath.co.uk is the handle there. Almost at 2,000 followers, which is so cool. Um, got my other channel, uh, Mike Mayer. Uh, link again is below. Um, so this channel is evolving and uh, eventually we're going to move the long form content off. Um, I'm going to have its own separate breathcast channel where the long form will be there. This channel is going to be predominantly breathing exercises with some probably clips of some cool stuff around breathing. Um, and then there'll be me talking on my channel. It all sounds very convoluted, but it should be easier by the time it's done. Um, and there'll be me just talking about all things breathing, you know, how the pulse oximeters work, what's the biology of science, what's hemoglobin and why is it important? How do we make sure that our hemoglobin and our red blood cells are able to release oxygen in the right way? So what I'm really excited about doing is just doing more of this, talking to the camera with you and sharing bite-sized educational content about the wonderful world of breathing and what I've learned over the last five years when it comes to wellness and breathing and all that good stuff. So I'm really excited to kind of ramp that channel up next year. You can join us. Uh, I think there's 97 people that have subscribed, including my mum on there and my girlfriend. Um, so if you want to be one of the first hundred, then click on that subscribe button. Let's hope that, that that grows a little bit. But that's an exciting place where we can share a lot more stuff. So if you've got ideas around what you'd like me to talk about, mouth versus nose, how do you run when you're breathing? Uh, how, sorry, how do you breathe when you're running? Um, what's the you know what's the benefits of humming and a thousand other breath related questions that's all coming on there so anyway enough yabbering from me have a wonderful rest of your day thank you for watching right the way through to the end you're one of the special few that made it all the way through uh, so i really appreciate you um and uh, we'll see you on the next breathcast. and if you like this check out this relaxing breathing exercise here this is what you should spend the next few minutes doing cheers see you later